I'd like for you to stand, if you're able, please, as I read verses 1 through 11 of Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it, and if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. And so they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, Why are you, why are you doing that, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. And so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thank you. You may be seated. Mark chapter 11. The gospel of Jesus Christ is often most misunderstood by those who are most familiar with it. Now that's true not because the biblical revelation of Christ is not clear, it is, but because the human heart does not find the Christ of Scripture to be totally acceptable. Even we as Christians in the flesh, we struggle with sometimes our fleshly questions about Christ and the truth claims of our Lord in Scripture. But it's easier to impose our selfish human expectations on Jesus than to accept the truth about heaven's kingdom, truth of the kingdom that he humbly declared, truth of the kingdom that he came and fulfilled. From the Genesis account of Cain and Abel to the churches of Asia Minor in the book of the Revelation, the Bible's history of redemption is fraught with examples of those who knew but wrongly interpreted or misperceived God's promise of redemption. And Scripture is likewise filled with God's correction of those misinterpretations or misperceptions. And chiefly, God's correction came to the Jewish people. Those to whom the Word of God was expressly revealed. But human misinterpretation does not negate God's clearly stated purpose, does it? God has said what he said. 
And as Paul explains in his letter to the Roman church, it's not as though the word of God has failed, simply because some, even its privileged Jewish recipients, do not pursue it by faith, as he says in Romans 9.33. As the apostle says in Romans 9 verses 4 through 5, to these physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and Christ. They knew that. They knew God's word. They heard it for centuries. They knew the promises. And God had promised through this chosen nation the blessings of his heavenly kingdom through a chosen Savior. This was not strange to their ears. They knew God would send a servant. They knew that servant would be a truly righteous prophet a truly righteous priest, a truly righteous king. And so when Mark's gospel presents the Lord Jesus to us, we're told of this humble servant who was himself a descendant of Abraham. And in verses 1 through 11 of this passage, we find another turning point in the narrative of Jesus' ministry. His service as the prophet declaring the kingdom of heaven has essentially come to an end at this point. And he now enters Jerusalem as the promised king and the one who will soon offer himself in his high priestly role as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice that provides entrance into the kingdom of before the Father's throne of grace. And we've been learning about that great high priest as Pastor John has been taking us through the book of Hebrews. But this passage in Mark gives us the triumphal entry of heaven's servant king presenting heaven's true kingdom. And it wasn't a kingdom like the Jewish people had come to understand maybe a kingdom that you don't really understand but here we also find this misperception of the people in Jesus day who although having all the facts lacked the spiritual sight the faith to perceive him so I want us to consider the servant king and his presentation of himself in the kingdom, and then the Jewish misperception. Let's look first at the presentation of Christ to the people in verses 1 through 6. Even as Joshua led ancient Israel into the promised land, beginning at Jericho, we will remember from the last portion of chapter 10 that Jesus now had come to Jerusalem, but he had first come on the road to Jerusalem through Jericho, much further down in elevation. And he's made his way up through the mountainous terrain, and he's come 
to the Mount of Olives, as we'll find. He's made his way to Jerusalem, the holy city. Jesus leading his people to the true promised land, the true holy heavenly Jerusalem. But he's doing that by way of the cross. And there he's going to give his life on the cross, a ransom for many, Mark has already told us. A ransom for many to bring sinners into the true heavenly rest. But as he draws near the holy city, he arrives at these small sister villages, if you will, these little hamlets of Bethphage and Bethany, one right on top of the other. As he's come to the Mount of Olives and about two miles to the east of Jerusalem, and on the Mount of Olives, you have a great view of the city. And at this time, Bethany, which means house of dates, and Bethphage, or Bethphage, which means house of unripe figs, and Bethany, which means house of dates, and the Mount of Olives, you sort of get the picture of a very fruitful place. Mount of Olives covered in olive groves, hence the name, would later be destroyed by the Romans. But Jesus and the disciples come. And the people are anticipating that this is very significant because there are large crowds, as you'll remember, walking with him. They're on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. They've come from the north, made their way down through the, the Jordan Valley, and they've come with Jesus through Jericho, and they've come up the mountain road from that city. And the Lord was familiar with Bethany, in particular, you'll remember it's the home of his good friend Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary. And he had been there many times. He had shared meals with them. And this is likely, as verse 11 will tell us, where he and the disciples will go back and lodge for the night after he presents himself, as it were, here at the triumphal entry on that day, which we typically refer to as Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of the Passion Week. It's the beginning of the Lord's Passion. He's, he's come with His eyes fixed on Jerusalem, set on Jerusalem, set on the cross. He is going there to give His life for His people. A sinless life. A perfect life. And He will give that life to be crucified unjustly, but there he will bear our sins. Now we know that. We look back on the cross, we look back having the, the full revelation of Scripture, we read the Gospels, we see the, the account and the description of things, but the disciples and the others didn't have the privilege we have. They're walking with Jesus. There's all kinds of excitement with the Passover feast at hand. And they see these things beginning to unfold. They know of Jesus. They know of His teaching. Everyone's anticipating, could this be the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God? And there they are on the Mount of Olives. Matthew's Gospel tells us that 
probably it was Bethphage that came first in the order of things on the road. Because that's where Jesus tells two of his disciples, I want you to stop and I want you to do something. Go into this village and I want you to acquire a special animal. And they're told two things. You'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, which they were to untie and bring back to him. And they were to expect to be questioned about it. And when they were questioned, they were to reply, the Lord has need of it. He'll send it back here immediately. And he tells them they'll send it along with you. Now, verse 4 and 5 inform us that everything happened just as Jesus said. That was an indication to the disciples that Jesus was firmly aware of everything going on. Despite all of the activity, despite all of the interest in him and all the excitement and all the things that had happened and were about to happen, Jesus is fully understanding and fully in control of this situation. It does not take him by surprise. He does not miss the true significance of it. It's another call for the humble trust of the disciples in their Lord to know that everything that is about to happen is a part of the kingdom agenda. Matthew tells us that this was the colt of a donkey and that Jesus requested the disciples to bring both. Mark just focuses on the colt and doesn't even tell us that it's a a donkey. But you'll remember that Mark, when he tells us things, it's, it's in, in rapid order. Immediately is one of Mark's favorite words. Jesus is a man of action. Jesus is a servant. Jesus is doing what the Father sent him to do. And Mark does not really give us all the information that Matthew and John do in particular, because this is one of the incidents in Jesus' ministry that all the gospel writers refer to. But we do know from the other gospels that the people should have known of the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 9 and verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew and John say this was done by the Lord in fulfillment of that prophecy. Jewish kings had traditionally ridden donkeys. You'll remember when King David was on his deathbed and one of his other sons, Adonijah I believe it was, had decided he would be king and he calls a group of the nation's leaders together and tries to have himself crowned king and it was found out, long story short, and brought to David's attention and David says, I want you to take my son Solomon 
have him ride on my donkey and anoint him king. This was understood that the king who would come, the ultimate king, a king greater than even the great king David, the, the one to whom God made a co- with whom God made a covenant and promised an eternal king to sit on his throne. The people knew that there would be that king, righteous, and having salvation, who was humble, who would be riding a donkey. And so Jesus is unmistakably presenting himself the ultimate king, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and even the best of Israel's kings before the time of exile had been less than perfect, and the people had been waiting for centuries. You, you get the idea, right? There's a great anticipation. We've had all these kings. We've had some great kings, even those that were very much like King David. But we've not had the great king yet. And we're waiting for him. And they expected him to arrive on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, this was not unknown. Sadly, though, they failed to perceive the fact that the prophets, like Zechariah, spoke of a righteous and humble king whose kingdom brought true salvation, not just a temporary earthly salvation. Now, they were familiar with that as well. God delivered the people of Israel over and over again throughout their history in a very earthly but temporal way. But that was all to say that he was the God of salvation. And frequently you'll find in the Old Testament, in particular the Psalms, God did all these wonderful things. God delivered his people and yet you did not trust him to save your soul. You wanted the salvation in a temporal way, good things to happen to you, be delivered from your enemies, so on and so forth, but you didn't want him to save your soul. That's not the salvation that you want of God's king. And so that brings us to the Jewish misinterpretation or misperception. They knew what they should expect. They had the scriptures. They had all of the old covenant ceremonial worship and all the types and all the shadows. They knew all of this. So do we. They didn't understand the Christ of Scripture. And as we go through these verses, I want you to ask yourself, do I understand this Christ? This is the Jesus that I'm here to worship this morning. This is the one who allows me to draw near to God. The disciples excitedly threw their cloaks on the animal. Hey, this looks like the fulfillment of prophecy. We're all for this. Let's let's give the Lord something to sit on. There's no no saddle here, no, no cloth to throw over the animal for him to ride. Let's throw our cloaks over it. That's a submissive act. 
That's an act of expectation. The crowds have the same reaction. They're traveling, as we said, for the Passover feast, and they have begun to throw their garments on the ground as they see Jesus mounting the donkey, and they cut palm branches, or as, as Mark tells us, leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. The other Gospels tell us they're palm branches. And so the significance of Jesus riding a donkey, that's not lost on any of them. They see it as a sign of royalty. And then they began to, behind the Lord and in front of the Lord on the road, shout, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. Now, why were they shouting that? Well, the pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem for Passover quoted the Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 113 through 118, and this is the very end of Psalm 118, the Passover Psalms. And they begin to shout. And what do they say? Hosanna, save us, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. They would have been declaring that anyway as they walked along, but then here's Christ on a donkey. Here's Zechariah 9, verse 9. And praise God. People in churches all over the place this morning praising God and quoting Scripture and listening to Scripture and singing hymns and singing psalms. But do they know who the Christ is? These people even recognize the significance as it relates to the Davidic covenant. And they bless the coming kingdom. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. And then they bless God again. Hosanna in the highest. Save us, O Lord God. The true and living God. God in the highest. You can know a lot about Scripture. You can even come to church and praise God according to Scripture, using the Scripture itself. But you can be jubilant for the wrong reason. Their cries for salvation are misplaced. Why? Because none, not even the disciples, 11 of them at this time, who actually are repentant and trusting in Christ, they realize, or don't realize rather, that the salvation for which they cry can only be obtained, listen, by their king's death on the cross. Remember the apostles back in chapter 10, they've been arguing on the, arguing on the road Who's the greatest among us? Who's going to be sitting on his right hand? Who's going to be sitting on his left? James and John had made this, this sort of back, behind-the-scenes deal with Jesus. You know, listen. And they brought their mom in on it. We want to be sitting one on your right, one on your left. They're anticipating the glory of the kingdom now. They're anticipating the overthrow of Rome now. They're anticipating good things in this life now. And Jesus has told them on more than one occasion, 
I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be unjustly treated. I'm going to be crucified. But I'm going to rise again. But the disciples and the people can't understand that the king is a servant. That the king not only was a prophet, but the king is also a priest and that he will give himself. They do not understand that you can't enter the kingdom unless the king atones for sin and opens the way to God. Do you understand that this morning? Yes, yes, yes. I know that Jesus died for my sins. That's great. I believe that. Now bless us, Lord. Take away all these problems in our lives. Make this crazy year, 2020, to be better. Isn't that the way we think? Even we who know the Lord, even we who have believed in Christ, we're not looking at it right. We're not remembering that the one who went to the cross to die for us, to bring us into the kingdom, has also said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He never said it would be easy. He never said the kingdom was going to be just glorious here on this earth. Oh, he's reigning. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of our Father. He's reigning now. And you are part of that kingdom. You've been brought into the kingdom. The sphere of God's salvation has encompassed you. He's brought you in through faith in Christ, if indeed you've trusted him. But there's no way to enter it except that our Lord's suffering comes first and by extension as his body we suffer with him. Apostle Paul tells us that we will through much tribulation enter the kingdom of heaven and that we must suffer with Christ. But this is not the king that the Israelites desired. Maybe that's not the king you desire who says, I've died for you and you're going to suffer with me. To some degree, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's right to praise God. It's right to praise God in the highest heaven. It's right to declare, save us, O Lord. But we have to understand what that salvation is about, what it required of our Lord and of us. Not that we are earning our salvation, not that we are adding something to what Christ has done, not by any means, but that we are then to follow him serving God in the work of the kingdom and that 
does not mean that it's easy. That's not the king they desired. That's not the king that a lot of people who claim to be in the kingdom desire today. They didn't want a king who comes to give his life a ransom for their souls and then call them to follow. No. You say, well, how do you know they didn't mean that? Well, by week's end, they'll be crying for him to be crucified. And why would they be doing that? Because as the week goes on, Jesus doubles down on the repent, believe the gospel, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He doesn't back off of that. Unlike Bartimaeus, the, the nation of Israel as a whole did not spiritually see Christ and the kingdom of heaven in truth. And I fear there are a great many professing Christians who don't see, that is to perceive Christ and the kingdom of heaven as it is in truth. Jesus has, at least in American culture, been watered down tremendously. The gospel's been watered down. And we want a king, and we want to sing praises to the king, but it's a king of our own making quite often in the church. We need to see, not just with physical eyes, spiritual eyes, truly be saved, to have our hearts opened by the Spirit of God and see ourselves the sinners we are, Christ the Savior that He is, and to follow Him, and then cry out, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord to fulfill all the promise. And that's what Christ has done. And that's how we should praise Him. When they thought of David's kingdom, they anticipated nothing heavenly. And even as Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven to them, they desire only an earthly kingdom. You're a Christian. You are in the kingdom. If indeed you're a Christian because your faith is in Christ alone. You are in the kingdom, but remember what that kingdom is, and remember what it is not. Remember what it is, and remember what it is not. They wanted a military leader, a political leader. Here in an election year, be careful where you place all your attention, and all your thoughts, and all your hopes, and all your dreams. It is not in your political leaders. It is in the king who gave his life for you. They wanted, listen, they wanted their king to, to assert their ethnic prominence. 
We are descendants of Abraham. We are the Israelites. Come, O Lord, make us great above all the nations. Because most of them didn't care about the other nations. That sounds eerily familiar. The Father's redemptive purpose that Christ accomplished so that the saints, both Jews and Gentiles, can enter the kingdom that encompasses a new heavens and a new earth. That's where our focus must be. Sadly, the national unbelief of Israel brought the curses of God's law and not the blessings of righteousness. And Jesus will pronounce this in the next passage as he comes to the fig tree and finds it fruitless. A symbol, a metaphor, if you will, of Israel to whom he's come and they are faithless, fruitless spiritually. Jesus is going to cleanse the temple in verses 15 through 19. He'll reaffirm God's redemptive purpose. This is my house. I established it. This was the way of worship. And all that it's supposed to mean, you should have been following. And yet, Israelites, you have perverted it. I wonder what the Lord would say to the churches today. I called you to worship me in spirit and in truth, and I have found nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort. Apostasy. Rejection of the king. I'll remind you what happened to Israel, to Jerusalem into the temple. A few decades later, in A.D. 70, the Romans came and wiped it out. Destroyed it all. Ended the Old Covenant era and that form of worship. God made a statement, but I think there's great application to the church. Brother Stan mentioned the church's in Revelation and how one had left its first love, we have to ask ourselves, have we left our first love? Are we in danger of the Lord? As he tells one of the churches there, he will remove their lampstand, their witness, because they failed to do what he called them to do, to bear witness of him, to follow him. And so we see that God's promise of salvation clearly misperceived by those the most familiar with it. Don't think that Christians today can't fall into the same trap. Don't think that today there aren't perhaps even whole so-called churches that don't even worship the Christ of Scripture. They did not believe what God promised. Do you? 
they wanted to be delivered from their temporal earthly oppression. Is that all you want? They cared nothing of the ultimate salvation that Christ brings. Are you that, that short-sighted? Are you that earthly-minded? They desired the blessings of an earthly kingdom. They did not perceive the kingdom of God. What did our Lord Jesus say to Pontius Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. We have to be in the world, but we can't be of it, as we say. But isn't this what so many people who claim to be Christians are really after? They don't want the righteousness of a humble, suffering servant king who calls for their repentance, for their trust, for their loyalty, no matter the consequences. They want a salvation that promises a trouble-free life. Your best life now. Hmm. They want a salvation that offers a trouble-free life. And one that tells them they can sin without any ultimate consequences. Here's the problem. That's the lie of Satan. In essence, the devil in the Garden of Eden told Eve as he deceived her, God didn't really mean that you're going to die. He just doesn't want you to decide what's right and wrong for yourself. He doesn't want you to be God like he's God, but you can really be God like he is without any consequence. No, you can't. You will die, and they did, spiritually, instantly. And we're all, henceforth, born into this world as sinners. And we need a Savior. And you're either in Adam or you're in Christ by faith. It's one or the other. But being in Christ by faith means you're in the kingdom and you're identified with Christ. You're completely associated with Him from God's perspective. Your sin imputed to Him, His righteousness imputed to you. You're identified, and so if He suffered, you're going to suffer. As He was treated in this world, you will be treated in this world. And as He served in the kingdom and did the Father's will, so you must serve in the kingdom and do the Father's will. You're not going to go to the cross and atone for anyone's sin, but you are nonetheless to follow Christ, even if that means your life. We have a king. I don't think, I don't think we perceive that. We have a king. This is not metaphorical. This is not some ethereal thing, some pie-in-the-sky religious philosophy. We have a king. It would behoove us every morning as we get out of bed to kneel down and say, Good morning, my Lord, the King. What is your will today? 
That is reality for the Christian. That is reality. The gospel is not some promise of earthbound ideals that God blesses and that Jesus helps us to realize. Let me say that again. The gospel is not some promise of earthbound ideals that God blesses and that Jesus just helps us to realize. Jesus is an example for you, but he's not just an example. No, the good news of salvation is that the life and the death and the resurrection of the servant king brings every sinner who repents, every sinner who believes in him, into heaven's kingdom. That's why it's good news. You're not worried about the king issuing the decree to have you executed for your treason. There is therefore now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Although Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him, says John in his gospel, Yet to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's why you're in the kingdom. But receiving Jesus means believing God's word about his Son. And unless your heart is opened by God to see the Son as the Heavenly Father reveals him, and Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then any claim by you to be a Christian or by me to be a Christian is based on a misperception. You've got to believe in the Christ of Scripture. You've got to accept him as the Father reveals him. It's not up for revision. We don't have the, the option of making Jesus fit our modern, contemporary culture. Scripture's not outdated. Christ is not outdated. Jesus Christ, as the writer of Hebrews said, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can deceive yourself. You can falsely do many things in Jesus' name, and you'll be cast out of his presence in the day of judgment. What did our Lord say back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done many things in your name, prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Now hear what our Lord the King will say. I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, that's why it's so important for the church to preach the truth of the Christ of Scripture, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful to have a church that does that. Paul also says in the book of Romans that the righteousness we need to enter the kingdom of heaven is a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ alone. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of Christ. That's the word Mark's declaring to us this morning. He's saying to enter God's kingdom, you need the Savior who is a king, the king of that redemption. King of that kingdom. So turn from sin. Turn from sin and believe, listen, in two the Lord Jesus Christ. When Scripture calls us to believe in Christ, it means believe into Him. Trust Him and become a part of Him. Be united to Him by faith. Believe into God's Son who declared heaven's kingdom, who opened the way to the kingdom and reigns over that kingdom forever. You must be united with him by faith to become a citizen of the kingdom. As citizens of the kingdom, as those who profess the Lord Jesus Christ as king and who decide or who desire to follow him, we come to the Lord's table this morning to communion. And that's the truth of Christ that is portrayed in the Lord's Supper, that we have this communion, this, this union with Christ that we share with Him, with one another. He's the head, we are the body. We commune with Him and with one another by partaking of the elements. It's a proclamation of the gospel to ourselves and to others. And it is the Lord Jesus' gracious affirmation of his righteousness and sacrifice on your behalf to assure, to assure you of your place in his kingdom. Come to the Lord's table. Let all who believe the word of Christ now come to Christ in communion. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing our closing hymn, and then we will fellowship around the Lord's table. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you. How we give thanks to you that you have brought the kingdom of heaven near to us. We praise you, our Father, that our Lord Jesus Christ came to serve, to do your will in the kingdom, the righteous prophet and priest and king. And Lord Jesus, we rejoice in your kingship, in your sovereignty over your people, in the fullness of eternal life 
that is your kingdom. That we may know, Father, you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We praise you. We thank you. We rejoice in you. We cry out, Hosanna. And we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. That you may reign over all things, as is the Father's plan. Father, we ask this in the name of our great King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.